This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. It's Tuesday, August 16th. Welcome to a special edition of Real Talk, a best of edition where we bring you a couple of the interviews that really made a mark. They really made an impact on the audience and on us as a team as well. You've probably heard about the Klondike Papers, but but how much do you know about what they contain or what it all means? Investigative freelance journalist Justin Ling joined us a couple of months ago today, as a matter of fact, on June 16th. He spent a lot of time working through these documents, and he's discovered some implications and and maybe some overblown commentary as well when it comes to the impact it could have on Canadians and the politics that surround us all. My conversation with journalist Justin Lang in just a moment, but first... A word from our sponsors. Apex Automation is putting out the call to engineers across Canada who are looking to make the most of their career and provide intuitive, fully autonomous solutions to industry. Are you dissatisfied where you are now? Do you feel underappreciated? Do you feel like your professional development opportunities are capped? Is there a problem with your corporate culture? Apex Automation could be your next best move. Check them out online at apexautomation.ca. Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge has Alberta's best selection of Chrysler, Jeep, and Ram trucks. You can check them out online or in person today and browse their new and pre-owned selection. Whether you're looking to upsize to make room for a new family member or downsize based on fuel costs, you'll find your perfect fit online or in person at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. Local Environmental Services has been providing waste and recycling management services in Alberta and now Saskatchewan for more than a quarter century. They're still family owned. Some people say it's only garbage, but not to local environmental services. They believe communities deserve better. Whether you're looking for water hauling, vacuum truck services, fencing, portable toilets, or front load bins, you can get your quote today at localenvironmental.ca. He's the writer behind the newsletter, bugeyedandshameless.com. You can subscribe there. We encourage you to do it. We encourage you to support independent journalism. He took on a story the minute he did it. I reached out and I said, you got to come talk to us, pal, because I'm in a wind wobble around this. What would you do for some Klondike papers? A new conspiracy theory emerges where you least expect it on the left at bugeyedandshameless.com. Justin Ling joining us live this morning. Thanks for making time for us. Good morning to you. Thanks for having me. I'll be honest with you, man. I'm so glad you did this. I, I, We were getting emails from people. Uh, we were getting DMs from people. People were hitting me up on Twitter, and I, was, I wasn't trying to ignore it. That's not the right way to characterize it, but I was trying to get into these Klondike papers. I was trying to understand what they're all about, and it's intimidating. I was like, I don't even mm-hmm. really get what this is. This is a wild story involving a lot of people. There's a lot of angles to it. What prompted you to actually dive in? I think I pretty much the same thing. I mean, it was getting inundated for a certain point from um, folks on Twitter, emails, messages from from folks who were saying, you know, you have to dig into this. Why is the media ignoring this? Is this being covered up? Why is no one spending time on this? And 
you know, sometimes I get those messages and I say, listen, this thing is nonsense. I'm not going to waste my time. Um, this was a circumstance where there was clearly some value in, in these documents. There was already a handful of stories that had been written based on them. Um, some reporting in Press Progress about some plan to hook up Doug Ford with the Russian embassy. Um, some reporting in the Toronto Star, I believe, uh, linking uh, Alberta Cabinet Minister Jonathan, uh, linking Alberta Alberta cabinet minister with a plot to obtain a journalist's cell phone records. So there is stuff here, um, clearly, but the claims that I saw being made ranged from the idea that, um, you know, the, the Conservative Party and lawyers linked to the Conservative Party had funded the convoy that took over Ottawa earlier this year, uh, that there is Russian dark money pouring into Canada and financing all manner of uh, political happenings, uh, and, and, and that there is a plan of money on the table to have the prime minister killed um, you know, from this, this shadowy religious evangelical sect. So a bunch of these claims weren't just being made by total yahoos. I mean, they were increasingly being shared by, um, you know, folks on Twitter, folks on TikTok, folks elsewhere who, uh, and, and including on some websites and blogs from some, you know, relatively well-known broadcasters. And uh, it was becoming increasingly clear that unless somebody kind of body checked this, these conspiracy theories and dug into them, figured out what was true, what was false, they were going to percolate into something much bigger. I mean, I was already looking at TikTok videos you know, tying all this stuff together and going even wider with it, alleging that there's some international plot of evangelicals and conservatives and nationalists to destroy our democracy. And it was racking up, you know, half a million views. So I think it was really incumbent to, to sort of tackle this thing head on and, and, and figure out where the truth lies. It's, I'm not comparing the conspiracies or the stories per se, but it even it even had that sort of uh, is Fidel Castro Justin Trudeau's father yes. kind of a vibe with regards to Pierre Polyev. Yeah, there was even a claim that Pierre Polyev was the son of this this political fixer, um, this lawyer who's who's been around uh, the Conservative Party for some years, a guy by the name of Gerald Shapur, who's the sort of puppet master, uh, at least according to to some of these conspiracy theories. Um, so it had everything, and 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 again, the claims that were being made, the claims that were being reported. Pretty well founded, in fact, I discovered pretty, pretty well, you know, reported press progress, the Toronto Star, some others had done a good job of, of digging into some of these documents, some of the claims being made in some of these interviews and some of these podcasts on some of these websites by the folks familiar with the papers were, were, you know, were, were trading on the legitimacy of those other documents, but were making claims that were just totally unsupported by fact, including this idea that Pierre Polyev is the secret love child of this conservative organizer. Um, and, and, and then finally, the third step were these folks who were taking these stories and drawing their own connections, drawing their own, you know, tying twine to, to push pins on a cork board. And it was very, very quickly taking on a life of its own. And, and it was increasingly driving people to say, like I said earlier, why is the media covering this up? Is the media part of the conspiracy? Are they being gagged? You know, what's happening here behind the scenes? So, you know, this is this is how these things start. And it happened really quickly, which is kind of what was so disconcerting. I mean, from from the time that these allegations were first made to, you know, these TikTok videos getting a half a million views, they were talking about some seven, eight days. I mean, yeah. this was incredibly fast moving.
Well, and I think that maybe there's a there's a, a certain sense that nah, that's not the right word, but but maybe people are, are, are more hyper aware or are more vigilant at this time because we're seeing credible reporting and and uh, astute editorials talking about the rise of so-called Christian nationalism in the United States and evidence that there is power uh, held by religious institutions that is manifesting itself politically. So you have a jumping off point there where a lot of people can say, I see some of this stuff happening in real time. So when you pull back the curtain, so to speak, on something like the Klondike papers, a lot of people are in a position ready. And this is probably just yeah. we can talk bigger picture about how conspiracies spread, period. People are ready to try to make sense of what how this is all happening behind the scenes, right? Yeah, and so so let's talk for a second about what's actually in these papers because I think it's it's interesting and it's useful. Um, you know, these papers are the records, the emails, the text messages, the Twitter DMs um, of one particular Canadian political fixer, a guy by the name of David Wallace, and some of the claims being made, especially some of the claims that got reported, are are, are seemingly quite true. At least these documents support them, as do other interviews, as do does reporting in other countries. Um, they largely, you know, this piece largely concerns a, an evangelical sect known as the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church. It is a um, particularly insular uh, organization. It's not very big, maybe 50,000 members worldwide. And it, it rests on the theology that the rest of the world is wicked. Only members of this church are good and pure, and therefore they shouldn't associate with anybody outside the church, even other evangelical denominations, uh, much less other religions or non-believers. And that begets, I, you know, what has been alleged is cult-like behavior. You know, they become increasingly insular. Anybody who tries to leave gets excommunicated, denounced. Uh, and what we've seen in Australia, New Zealand, and elsewhere is this practice of hiring private investigators to go after people who have left the church and those who have spoken out about it. And seemingly that's what happened here in Canada. Allegedly, that's what happened here. Um, this Wallace fellow was was hired by this this you know semi prominent lawyer, I think, working independently by a guy by the name of Gerald Chaper, supposedly Pierre Polyev's dad. And Chaper hires him to go track down this one particular whistleblower who had left the church and and kind of rung the bell about some of these shady practices. Well, over the course of, of doing that contract, Wallace has a falling out with Chaper and, and with the church and some others. And he actually goes to the guy he was supposed to be surveilling and said, you know, hey, listen, the church has it out to get you. They want me to track you down. They want me to take your cell phone. They might even want me to kidnap you. I think you should be aware. And maybe you want to skip town. So this is all well supported by these documents. And this is all some pretty crazy stuff. I mean, you know, this is kind of Scientology like behavior. This is the sort of thing we should be aware of and alert to and worried about. This is the sort of behavior we, we, we should not be tolerating um, from, from a religious sect in this country. And it's worth you know a fair bit of scrutiny. But here's where things really go off the rails. It was over the course of a bunch of interviews um, on a, a podcast with a guy named uh, James Diafori, um, as well as broadcaster Dean Blundell that Wallace starts making some of these bigger claims that the convoy was partly organized by this lawyer, Shapur, um, that uh, Russian dark money is flowing into the country through casinos and financing all manner of political activity, that um, this Brethren Church wanted the prime minister taken out, and it's implied really heavily, thanks to Blundell and some others, that that was an assassination plot. Um, and and you know, all sorts of other claims kind of stem out of that. But these claims are not supported by these documents he has. Um, the you know, push comes to shove. Wallace kind of admits that maybe he's overstating some of these things. But, but you know, people heard the sort of truth behind this, the truth about this church, 
heard these wild accusations, which are not based in reality, and ran with it. And and it, it was really quickly creating this little conspiracy movement that, uh, you know, I think we'll see where it goes from here on out. But, you know, it had the potential to kind of create this sort of deranged QAnon-like movement on the left. This is, were you surprised that Blundell took that interview, by the way? No. No. No, I mean, I mean, listen, I, I actually went on um, James D'Afori's show last night to chat about some of these things. I mean, I I think that some of these folks like to play the in-between between journalist and and and, you know, entertainment broadcast. And they, they kind of some, to some degree admit this. I think their listeners ascribe to them a level of journalistic integrity that they don't have and might not even claim to have. I think they have a habit for saying, you know, we're just going to air all sides. We're going to let people say what they want to say. And, and we'll let, you know, our, our listeners and our readers decide the truth. Mm. Um, but I think that's irresponsible for one. I think Blundell in particular went far beyond that. He actually repeated these claims verbatim and then actually built upon them on his website without really a- adequate caveat or warnings. Um, I think they took these things at face value. They didn't challenge Wallace um, at any at any point in time. They didn't, um, you know, do any digging to assess the validity of any of these things. Um, and, and frankly, I think it was irresponsible. I think people who were watching this show, reading Blundell's website, um, assumed they had done some level of work. And because they were already so primed to believe these things, um, they they really trusted Blundell you know, probably far more than they should have. I'm still getting messages from people saying, you know, you didn't do it. You didn't do your job. You didn't read these documents adequately. Blundell did. I'm, I'm siding with Blundell, even though Dean Blundell and James DeFore are now saying, oh, uh, we may have goofed. We're going to, ret- you know, we're actually going to now retract some of these big claims and say, you know, maybe maybe we, we were a little bit too rash in, in believing some of these things. But, you know, this is is what happens when conspiracy theories like this, when these big claims get made and don't get challenged immediately and quickly. Like, I, you know, I I still think of an alternative version of reality where um, you know, in the early, early days of QAnon, we had picked up on it sooner and had challenged it sooner and had 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 dived in to try and say, yeah, you're right. Jeffrey Epstein you know, was protected by powerful people. You're right. Bill Clinton probably was too close to the guy. Probably but, did fly on his jet. Sure. Probably. Yeah, probably, probably did fly. We know he's flying on his jet. Yeah. But, you know, here's here's what we can prove. And here's what is still kind of innuendo. And here's what we can prove is actually definitively false. I, I don't know that it would have stopped QAnon from becoming a big conspiracy theory, but I think it probably would have lessened its impact and maybe um, stripped away some of its ability to recruit and radicalize people. Um, so I think increasingly you know, I'm on the lookout for conspiracy theories that are that are just emerging um, to see if we can sort of insert ourselves in quickly, do a kind of rapid response uh, and give people the tools they need to 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 tackle these things, to understand why why they're keen to believe, um, you know, what the real motivations behind the originators of these conspiracy theories truly are, why some of the broadcasters who promote them are doing so, uh, and, and to try and help people make up their own minds with all the all the useful facts. I think we've learned over the last couple of years that this this fact check culture this this sort of browbeating people and and telling them um you know they're they're wrong you know fact check false you know eight pinocchios whatever whatever you want to call it um i think that that culture has has done a disservice and has probably backfired in a big way i think we have to chat with these people directly head on and we have to show them why we're making these claims not just tell them it's wrong Mm, yeah i've i've had a i had a fascinating conversation with someone off air 
uh, talking about the trend to dehumanize people that, that you disagree mm-hmm. with or dehumanize people that, that, quite frankly, just cut to the chase that you think are stupid or that have stupid ideas mm-hmm. and how it's actually a really dangerous approach. Mm-hmm. And there's too much of it happening right now. And it's leading to this division. But there are things like I want to ask you this, Justin Ling, our guest, if you're just tuning in live streaming on the Mixler audio app, uh, independent freelance uh, journalist does an amazing job on the investigative side. You can check out bug and shameless.com. Subscribe there. We encourage you to support independent journalism um people will say well it makes sense that they would think that there could be some dark money or some big money at least let's say funding that freedom convoy because they were talking they were in the tens weren't they in the ten it was like they were raising like tens of millions of dollars it was wild remember at least they had like 15 million with gofundme then they went to that christian funding service because gofundme didn't want to be affiliated with it and i think a lot of people were saying where is like where are millions of dollars coming from? So, again, the door opens to something that may be valid, maybe not. Mm-hmm. And people go, well, OK, I can see it's not out of the realm of possibility. Right. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. But here's the thing. You know, it's very easy to sit around and say uh, there's a whole bunch of dark money, money pouring in. And it's the Russians and it's the it's the, these American billionaires uh, and the money's missing. and No one knows where it is because you can claim that uh, having done no independent research or investigation or study of these issues. And people will believe you because people want to believe that because it feels true. And this is kind of what I said about Blundell and the euphoria and some of these other broadcasters, they're more interested in what feels true than what is true in some cases. Um, and, and, you know, that's their purview. I mean, not everyone is, it has to be an investigative journalist. Not everyone has to do, spend their entire day dealing with this stuff. Some people can, can have entertaining and fun podcasts and that's okay. But you know, there, there are those of us who have done the work, who, you know, who have sifted through the donations, uh, the public ones, the leaked data uh, behind uh, the Give, Send, Go uh, crowdfunding platform. There are those of us who have looked through the email inboxes of the organizers of the convoy, also leaked through, um, you know, kind of an, a hacktivist campaign. Um, there are those of us who have spoken to people in the federal government who have dealt with the, the, the money, um, the surveillance of the fundraising. There are those of us who have interviewed uh, organizers and participants of the convoy. And what we can tell you is that there was was certainly some rich people who gave money, but the vast majority of these donations came from individual donors. And I realize this is, for some people, an unpleasant reality. Some people don't want to believe that there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people out there who uh, identify with this, with this, with the convoy and the occupation, who are anti-vaccine, who are distrustful of the government, who are themselves adherents to conspiracy theorists, or who hate the Trudeau government, or who support, you know, someone like Chris Skye, who, who participated in the, in the, in the convoy. Um, it's an unpleasant reality to realize that the kind of divisions in our society are this deep and this stark and that there is this many people who have been kind of disconnected and deranged from society. But the reality is that's what's happening. And it is an easy out and it's a wrong out to say it's all some shadowy man behind the curtain. It's all some uh, international conspiracy. I mean, this is exactly what Pierre Polyev is doing with um, his effort to become leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. I mean, he is turning to his followers and saying, Everything bad in the society, all these all these bad things, inflation, um, you know, the, the Trudeau government, um, maybe even the pandemic, these public health measures, vaccine mandates. Well, that's not just 
a government you dislike. It's also an international forum where the rich and elites go to cook up ways of restricting your freedom. And it's it's in Davos, Switzerland, and it's run by this shady German guy. And the World Economic Forum is, is, is out to destroy your freedom and your civil liberties. And it's working incredibly well because people are primed to believe this. They might not know anything about the World Economic Forum, but my God, they, they're they ready to accept that it's 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 the, the master of all evil in this country. Yeah, there's a lot of people that know the name Klaus Schwab that have no idea who he is or what he's about or what yeah. the actual, right? Um, so, and this would be of particular interest. One of these angles in particular, when you mentioned the name Jonathan Dennis, a lot of people in Alberta, their ears go, bing! Because the former mm. justice minister, the former solicitor general has has found himself involved in in several really fascinating and intriguing stories. He's represented some people that are quite colorful. Uh, he's been involved in some personal dust ups, uh, including with his ex-wife. And so people are always kind of Jonathan Dennis is not just your average boring lawyer. No offense to lawyers. Mm. So when it was reported by the Canadian press uh, and, and this uh, fixer says, and you've referenced this as part of the Klondike papers, you know, fixer David Wallace, right, says that Jonathan Dennis, former Alberta justice minister, hired him to get a reporter's phone logs. We're talking about uh, Alana Smith now of Canadian press, former Calgary Herald uh, reporters. A lot of people in Alberta were going to pay attention to that because it's kind of a so-called local angle, right? People in Ontario, mm. same deal. If there's a thing that has, you know, an angle on Doug Ford, people in Ontario, especially considering the recent election, are going to be paying close attention to that. Can we do like a, a Coles Notes bullet point type assessment? Uh, and I encourage people to read the more long form approach you take uh, in your paper. But but what checks out and what absolutely does not check out when it comes to the Klondike papers? Yeah. And, and there's stuff that absolutely checks out. Like I said, this, this, this plot to surveil and, and maybe even kidnap. The kidnap angle is a little shaky, but at the very least, the plan to surveil and track this ex-member of the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church checks out you know I've, I've spoken to the the the, the ex-member in question i've looked at these documents i've looked at uh the church's uh tactics elsewhere and everything follows uh, you know i i nothing to prove it in court obviously but everything looks pretty legitimate um the, the story about jonathan dennis uh, trying to hire uh wallace and other associates to to get uh, this reporter's phone logs also seems to be very you know well founded and the canadian press did a great job on that story ditto for these um these documents that seem to show an effort by uh, Wallace and others to arrange a meeting between the Russian embassy, perhaps Russian business, uh, and Doug Ford. Um, that is legit. The, the meeting never happened. Doug Ford ultimately didn't take it, obviously, for, for, for incredibly smart reasons. But nevertheless, the effort was a, was afoot. There are other things in these documents uh, that may in, in end up proving other nefarious deeds by um, the, Patrick Brown's name is in there extensively. Um, other folks around the federal and provincial conservative parties in Ontario and Alberta um, is in there. It's, it's going to require a little more time. The, you know, these documents are with a number of journalists across the country who are um, you know, doing the due diligence to make sure that everything checks out, because the reality is these documents are a total mess. There's claims being made in here in private conversation that are completely baseless. There's rumor and innuendo flying this way and the other. Um, you know, there are contracts that got signed and never executed. There are plans that never get put into place. So it's incredibly difficult to parse through everything. But at the very least, the tales in here that relates specifically to David Wallace, this, this ex-political fixer who often did sort of PI work uh, for many of these of these politicians or these political organizers, Everything that kind of is 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 tightly focused on on his work seems to be legit. I mean, you know, the, the, these are the guy's internal emails, and he, we know for years he worked 
doing some 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 shadowy kind of behind the scenes work. Um, so I think there'll be more shoes to drop on that front. And when you see them come out, if they come out in a, in a, in a major outlet, um, you know, even some of the smaller ones like Press Progress, I think you can have a degree of, of trust in it, if not a, a high degree of trust. I mean, you know, this is what we do. We, we get documents like these and we kick the tires on them and we stress test them and we call around to see if they're legit. And we talk to the people named and we look for corroborating evidence. Um, and, and, and that's the work we do. We're, we're not hiding anything. We're not dragging our feet. We're not trying to keep um, you know, the, the lid on things. We're, we're not being gagged by court order like some have suggested. It takes time to get this stuff right, which is, again, why it's really frustrating to see people go off half cocked and say, you know, here are all the big claims the media doesn't want you to know about. Um, the reality is, you know, we're doing our best to figure out what's true because the last thing we want is to start publishing things that later have to be retracted. Um, you know, I, I think a great example is, is I was talking to some colleagues about this today was BuzzFeed's publication of the the Steele dossier about Donald Trump and the, mm -hmm. the sort of grandiose and 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 we now now maybe somewhat ridiculous claim that there was a, a P tape out there about you know the former president. Um, I think the publication of that document ultimately did a ton to hurt our credibility, um, even though most outlets published it with huge caveats and really useful um, explanations about why they can't necessarily be trusted. Uh, nevertheless, I think the decision to go off, have cock without fully checking every single claim in there, without, every, without ever fully assessing all of those um, all of those details, I think, was a huge mistake. And, and and you're bang on. And the timing of your comment is important. I mean, it, it was it was just announced June 14th, a couple of days ago. Reuters Institute released its 2022 digital news report. I know you saw this um, shows that Canadians trust in the news media has sunk to its lowest point in seven years. That's something that can't be ignored. And it's why investigative journalism done right is so important. Uh, Justin, we want to respect your time. I just I, I want to ask you this in closing, because mm -hmm. you do so much more than the Klondike papers, obviously, and you've, you've built your reputation in Canada uh, with, with a ton of coverage and a ton of work invested into a bunch of different stories. Uh, we were just showing some interesting research from Abacus data. Johnny, you mind putting mm -hmm. that up real quick just around conspiracy theories it shows that 44 percent of Canadians polled believe that big events like recessions, elections and wars could be controlled by small groups secretly working against the rest of us. Forty one percent, more than four out of 10 Canadians believe that much of our lives are controlled by plots hatched in secret places and almost four in 10 37 percent believe a group of people the so-called great replacement a group of people is trying to replace native-born canadians with immigrants who share their political views i know you've also been paying attention to the january 6th committee hearings in the united states in closing uh, your general assessment, uh, your, your your inclination, your understanding, your finger on the pulse of where we're at right now with regards to where people are at, generally speaking, conspiracy theories, common sense and the art of conversation, people meeting in the middle to have conversations that matter. Yeah, you know, I think this polling data is interesting. I, I always I'm a little bit leery of of opinion polling about conspiracy theories because the reality is most conspiracy theorists don't want to pick up the phone and report what they believe necessarily. Lots of people who want to you know mess around with pollsters will tell them they believe in just about anything. People misunderstand questions. People who are not familiar with conspiracy theories don't know they're being asked about conspiracy theories and say yes because they don't fully understand. I've had the belief that if you've polled you know two thousand Canadians and asked them are all cats boys and dogs girls. 12% are going to say yes. Right. So the reality is, and this is not to, to, to dig at Abacus, I think there, it's useful to have this data and it's useful to at least have a, a bit of a benchmark, especially as, as these numbers may go up and down. I think it's important we kind of keep tabs on, on these beliefs. And the reality is, 
there are millions of people in this country who believe conspiracy theories, whether that's there, there's an Illuminati that are plotting a new world order, whether that's there's a there's a plan afoot to replace white Canadians, ethnic Canadians, ethnically and you know European Canadians with with immigrants or non-white folks, um, you know, which is deeply racist and troubling and, and in some cases a violent conspiracy theory. I no doubt that 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 belief is is relatively prevalent in this country. Ditto for the belief that the World Economic Forum is somehow pulling the strings of our government. Um, you know, we have seen data both in Canada and the US that many of these conspiracy theories are not just uh, here, but they're growing and they take hold really quickly. Something that I was reporting on from the very early days of the war in Ukraine was this idea being pushed, not just by the Russian government, but also by QAnon here at home, that um, part of the reason for the invasion was to destroy um, US funded bioweapons labs in Ukraine. Well, it only took about a month for that the conspiracy theory to make it to the halls of power in Congress and also to find belief in about 12% of the American public. Again, that number is a little, a little squishy, but nevertheless, you know, maybe as much as one in 10 of the country believed this, this completely baseless conspiracy theory. So, um, these things are moving faster than they ever have before. They're 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 finding purchase amongst more people than they ever have before. They're making um, you know a more significant impact than they ever have before. And governments and political entities are finding ways to weaponize them in in new and terrifying ways. And it's part of the reason why I started this 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 newsletter um, was to dig into exactly these things. You know, I have written about how 4chan has helped craft, mold, and popularize the Great Replacement Theory. I've written about how David Ick, the guy who told us that everyone in power was a secret lizard, ended up having the last laugh because many of the things he wrote have basically been adopted wholesale by a huge political movement in, in the West, in Europe, and Canada, and the US. Um, obviously, not so much the lizard people thing, but everything else has been more or less adopted wholesale as a incredibly potent and, and dangerous political ideology. And uh, later this week, I'll be writing, actually probably tomorrow, if I can get to it, I'll be writing about how um, you know, this biolabs conspiracy theory continues to percolate and, be, and has become a really useful weapon in, in Putin's propaganda war. So there's a lot happening here. And it, you know this goes beyond just um, you know, laughing and jeering at the, at the dumb people who believe these things, because it's way more complex than that. Many of the people who fall for these conspiracy theories are incredibly smart and incredibly sophisticated actors who have become so disengaged with our current reality, our current political culture, our current institutions, that they have not just uh, taken, you know, taken hold of these conspiracy theories, but have helped create them and help craft them and help make them into something that is incredibly sophisticated and hard to debunk and hard to disprove. So we're in a really dangerous spot now, and I don't think things are going to get better, but the best we can do for the moment is understand where the stuff's coming from, understand why we want to believe, and to understand the motivations of the people who are selling this stuff to us. Because uh, until we do all of that, I think we're going to keep seeing this get exponentially worse. You can read, subscribe to, and support Justin Ling's work at bugeyedandshameless.com. Important work now more than ever before. It's always great to connect with you. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for this. Thanks for having me. You bet. Aren't we lucky? Really? I mean, aren't we lucky to have journalists like Justin Ling who commit to doing the heavy lifting 
who spend the countless hours that it takes to make those freedom of information requests and sift through the documents and, and quite frankly, participate in what is a tedious exercise to make sure that stories that are flying under our radar don't. Make sure you support independent storytelling, like what Justin's doing, like what we're doing. We're not above asking for your support and thanking you for when you show it to us. You can subscribe to our podcast, subscribe to our YouTube page, rate and review what we're putting out there. Of course, we also have a Patreon we'd love for you to check out, and I'd be remiss if I didn't encourage you to support Justin's work as well. Hey, speaking of independent podcasters, Kelsey Snow is a remarkable human being. Her husband, Chris, assistant GM with the Calgary Flames, diagnosed with ALS quite some time ago. In fact, he was insistent it wouldn't take his life on the timeline that doctors gave him. Kelsey, watching her husband and, of course, sharing in his grief and his resolve, kickstarted the Sorry I'm Sad podcast. And back on June 9th, she joined me to talk about it to talk about her family's health and emotional journey. We received messages from so many of you with whom Kelsey's message resonated, and we're grateful for that. Kelsey Snow in just a second. But first, Eden Landscaping is bringing outdoor spaces to life. In fact, that's what they've been doing for more than 20 years. Mike and his team are experts from modern to traditional design and everything in between. Their projects have one thing in common, happy clients. You can check out their portfolio online today at landscapeedmonton.ca and take the first step toward bringing your outdoor space to life with Eden Landscaping. The Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park want to remind you they have a brand new signature stack burger collection ready for you to check out. Of course, all the classic favorites like that Dairy Queen double cheeseburger and some of the new ones like the signature steakhouse stacker with that onion ring on top. Of course, the big lineup of Blizzard speaks for itself. And don't forget to grab a box of Buster Bars the next time you're at the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, New Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. For more than 65 years, Friesen Brothers has been putting really great food on family tables across the province of Alberta. Still family-owned, Friesen Brothers is a proud member of 16 different communities, where on the first of the month, you can take 15% off every grocery order of more than $75. Friesen Brothers, Alberta-grown, Alberta owned. She's worked as a journalist across the United States. Some of the biggest newspapers, Boston Globe, LA Times. We're going to get into that. Her husband, a high profile executive assistant general manager of the Calgary Flames. But it's the way that Kelsey wears her heart on her sleeve through her podcast. Sorry, I'm sad. That has so many people talking. We wanted to introduce you to their family before we get real live. Take a look at this. Hi, my name's Cohen. And I'm Willa. And we have a favor to ask you for us and our dad. Remember when everyone was doing this? The Ice Bucket Challenge raised over $200 million for amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, a devastating disease that affects the nerves and muscles we use to walk, talk, eat, and breathe. You probably know it as ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. 
Some of that money boosted research that identified genetic causes of ALS, led to the development of experimental new therapies, and helped our dad Chris Snow live to his 40th birthday and throw the first pitch at a Red Sox game. Even though he's right-handed, ALS forced him to throw his pitch 60 feet 6 inches with his left. So while progress is being made, the battle is just beginning. It's time to start a new challenge, and we need your help. Go do something you love, but with your other hand. Or other foot. Throw that fastball. Take that jumper. Get creative. But do it with your weak side. Take a video or a picture. Post it. Then challenge a friend to do the same. And donate to ALS Research through WeakSideStrong.org. Embrace your weak side so that others can be strong. couple of pretty incredible young people there and I know that our next guest is immensely proud of them when her husband was diagnosed with ALS and given six to 12 months to live Kelsey Snow avoided other people's sad stories as a rule but as time wore on she's actually found herself seeking out those sad stories she's a former sports reporter as mentioned for the St. Paul Pioneer Press the Boston Globe the LA Times and she's now the force behind the sorry I'm sad podcast kelsey snow welcome to real talk thanks for having me ryan this is uh just super powerful stuff and uh our family has been impacted by als uh but at an advanced stage my wife's uh maternal grandma um had a a battle with als that resonated and continues to with the family for a long time your family's story um somewhat remarkable and 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 heartbreaking in its own way because your husband is so young uh chris so young uh when did you first know that, that ALS was, was going to impact your family? What was the very first moment where Chris and you started to wonder if that might be it? Yeah. I mean, pretty early on, he had, um, some issues with his, uh, two of his fingers on his right hand. And, you know, you mentioned ALS in your family. It sounds like it was sporadic, right? Which means there's no family history, Mm. um, in our family and Chris's family, that's different. It's genetic. Only 10 to 15% of ALS is genetic. Um, but that's what we're dealing with in our family. Uh, not even a year before Chris started to have that weakness in his fingers, his dad died of ALS. He's also lost two uncles and a 28 year old cousin to the disease. So we knew what we were looking for. And that meant that Chris was diagnosed pretty quickly. Um, ALS is a process of elimination diagnosis on average. It takes, um, a year or more to be diagnosed, but Chris was diagnosed in just a few months. When the diagnosis when there's that moment and you talk about it in your podcast, you talk about it, it's really powerful. I mean, you're, you're incredible with your words and you talk about this white room and you're like, there's nothing on the walls. Right. And it was, you don't even remember the lab tech's name uh, that sort of had, had provided some information to you. There was just, I would imagine there's just this moment where you feel like you've been hit by a truck a little bit. Yeah. I think I grabbed a trash can. If I was going to throw up, um, you know, I think we kind of knew in our heads what we were probably dealing with, but there's always the hope we know we had kind of been chasing for this period that he was having this sort of intermittent, uh, weakness, uh, numbness in his fingers, the hope that maybe he had a pinched ulnar nerve from all his typing and things like that, but, um, leaning on his elbows when he typed and things, but yeah, I mean, the guy said, I think we're probably dealing with some form of motor neuron disease. And I, you know, was like, uh, we know what kind of, <laughs> we know what we're dealing with here at this point. Um, he was, he was just, uh, administering a, a test 
that is when they, it's called an EMG. They stick needles in your muscles to gauge how your nerves are interacting with them. It's a horrible test. Um, and so he was kind of just giving us a preliminary diagnosis. And then a week later, Chris was actually diagnosed by a neurologist in Miami. I, 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 I try to walk a mile in your shoes. Um, you know, if my, my, the love of my life, if my soulmate was diagnosed with something, whatever, and given six months or 12 months to live. And by the way, we'll talk about Chris and we've pulled some video of him, like mowing the lawn and things like, like, he's just, I just, there's something about this guy. I'm like, this guy is just <laughs> refusing to accept, not refusing. You know what I'm saying? He's, he's not yes. going to let it bring him down is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. But I try to walk miles in your shoes and I think at that diagnosis and not even just the diagnosis, but after in the months after and watching this disease take hold and seeing your husband lose the expression in his face, watching him feed himself by a tube, I would I would grieve, I would weep, I would feel sorrow and I would probably, if I'm being honest, feel a ton of anger. Mm-hmm. I think probably, even though I have run my mouth since I was four years old, I think I'd probably clam up. You decided to do the opposite I mean, you're putting it all out there and you're actually seeking out stories on, and it's not just ALS. I mean, you know, people that have dealt with infertility or miscarriage or a stroke at a young age or, or medical assistance in dying, a family member's elected. I mean, you are having tough conversations and you show up with your story every time too. When did you decide that's how you wanted to handle this and why did you decide that? Yeah. So right away, we knew that we would have a different platform for talking about ALS and getting people to listen to us just because of Chris's job, um, being a little bit, um, higher profile working for the flames. And, you know, we knew that the sports community and the hockey community would want to support us. And we just knew that we wanted to do something. We hadn't really done anything. Um, as far as advocacy goes, when we had lost his dad, his uncles and his cousin, um, and this was our chance to show people that this disease impacts, you know, not just old men, uh, it impacts young families, it impacts women, it impacts everybody and the ripple effect is huge. And so right away we knew we wanted to tell, um, tell our story via me writing. Um, I had already kind of started a blog, but I hadn't really been posting a lot. And so I decided just to start talking about what we were dealing with. And and honestly, it was pretty cathartic for me to write about it. Um, I write most often when I'm sad. So you'll see a lot of posts happening. If I'm writing a lot, you know, I'm very sad. (laughs) Um, And if I'm not writing a lot, hopefully that means I'm doing okay. And I've tried to kind of reconcile that too and not force these things, but I did sort of run away from other people's stories because I didn't want to have to think about the worst case scenario. Uh, and then there was a point, I think probably, you know, I always describe my sadness as this sort of panicky feeling, um, at the beginning, something that you feel like you can maybe get away from that you might outrun still that there's maybe some chance that you don't have to actually deal with this. And, um, once that transitioned into a sadness, sort of born of acceptance, it quieted down. And at that point, I really wanted to understand, um, how other people dealt with unimaginable things things that you think, oh, I, you hear somebody else's story and you think, oh, I can't, I can't imagine. Well, you, I needed to imagine. Hmm. Um, and so when I started to have those conversations, I started to get a lot of responses to my blog posts uh, from people saying, this is my sad story. Um, and when, you know, your, your words are sort of, I, I had somebody write to me and say, they printed off a blog post and took it to their therapist. Like, this is how I feel. I just haven't been able to say it yet. And so I thought we need more spaces to talk about these things. I'm certainly not the only person to have a podcast that is like this, but I do think when you can come from a place where you understand, um, sort of this 
feeling of being in that white room with, you know, no, nothing on the walls and feeling like you're going to throw up, like your world has just, the bottom has dropped out. You can have these conversations in a different way. You connect with people who have gone through hard things in a different way. Um, and so, so I decided to start the podcast with the idea that I would share our story in hopes that other people would be willing to join me and share their stories. Um, and a lot of people say to me, like, don't you get pulled under? Like, isn't it too sad? Um, and I, and Chris jokes too, Chris is like, oh, I don't want, I don't really like to listen to Kelsey's podcast. Like, sorry, I don't want to be sad. He always says, and I find that the opposite, like if I can sit in those things, I find it hopeful. I find it, Mm. um, you know, I find it buoys me to know that people have gone through really hard things and they have found a way to still see joy and beauty in the world. Uh, so I come out of those conversations, even if they're hard, I come out of them feeling better. It's remarkable. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the the emotional lifting, like the sort of the sort of the heavy lifting that you do in hosting this. I was trying to, I was, and and we're taking a look through, and I, I wanted to listen to several episodes in their entirety before I talked to you. And I was even looking at the schedule of when you post, and it's interesting to to hear you say that you write or you create more when you're sad because you you do post. People can check it out. Sorry, I'm sad. dot com. Um, and let me encourage people to subscribe to your podcast wherever they get their podcast, to rate it, to review it, to share it, to make sure that it gets out and, and as many people see it and hear it as possible. But you post on a relatively regular basis, like sometimes once a week, sometimes a couple of times a, a week. Uh, I would imagine that that there is a toll that that must take. Right. I mean, you could ask the same thing. Maybe it's a strange comparison, but I, I think of people that work like in palliative care or people that work as funeral directors or people mm-hmm. that work like whatever, where every single day they're helping other people navigate something big. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I try to I do the podcast unless like Chris ends up in the hospital in Toronto and I have to go there or whatever. I try really hard to do um, every other week on mm-hmm. the podcast uh, during ALS Awareness Month in the U.S., which was in May. It's n- June in Canada. Um, I did an episode every week because I did one with one of my very good friends whose husband also has ALS. And then I did one with the former NFL player, Steve Gleason. So I sort of did my regular episodes and then I did some ALS episodes as well. It's really important for me to talk about what this disease looks like in all different parts of life. And so I tried to take advantage of that. But yeah, it does. It can it can be a lot of work, I guess I, it's the preparation. I think that's the hardest. Cause I do all the preparation myself. I do. Well, I do all the podcasts myself. I do the recording, the editing. I find the guests. I, you know, prepare the conversation flow. I don't like to really call it an interview because I just want to talk to people. Um, and that part is hard to kind of like, you really have to immerse yourself in what this person went through mm. actually having the conversation Um, I always, you know, I feel a lot of, um, there's a lot of weight behind asking somebody to share with you this hardest part of their life. And I feel a great amount of responsibility to handle that, uh, carefully. And so, you know, I think there's a element of anxiety in getting ready for the interviews, just because I want to make sure that people feel, um, you know, feel like they were respected and feel like their grief was, um, handled carefully. And that it was honored, right? Yes. I, I, um, yeah, I can think of, I I'm thinking of, um, I'll say Sherry Arsenault has become a friend of mine. She's, I don't know if the name will resonate with people, but, um, you know, her son was with his best pals, um, driving sober, doing everything according to the law. They were doing absolutely nothing wrong. They were rear ended. Can you wrap your mind around Kelsey? You're a mom, they're 18 mm. years old. They're rear ended by a truck traveling at 200 kilometers an hour, blew up the car, uh, the boys were all killed instantly, and Sherry has been advocating ever since 
uh, for tougher drunk driving laws legislation in Canada. And, and this is it has defined her life's work moving forward. And it is the most tragic, but also the most honorable type scenario. Um, Sherry's one example I could have picked a thousand over the course of a body of interviews. Same as you. Um, as a journalist, but every time, and I know she won't mind me saying this, every time I prepare to talk to her, I just, I take a second to just try to go to a space where I remember that if I was doing an interview talking about my son dying a horrific death in a scenario that would demolish any parent, um, you, you, you approach those conversations very differently Right. You know, I mean, you know, when you're in the question asking business, sometimes you just rat a tat tat who, what, when, where, why. And you have to. This is so different, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And I think that um, that's one of the reasons why I try to give as much time. You know, there's all I do. I do not do live podcasting like you. Mm -hmm. It's very brave of you. But we record Mm -hmm. and I and I try to be. You know, there's a lot of conversation right now in the journalist journalism world about trauma-informed um, interviewing and what that looks like. And I think it's a really important thing to say. You know, I always tell people before I talk to them, "Is there anything you don't want me to talk about today?" Um, and if they say no, that's fine. I always say, "Okay." If at any point I ask you a question and it, you don't want to answer it, it's just feeling like it's bringing up too many things. Just say, "I don't. This is not something I want to do." We can move on. I can, you know, edit it out. If after the fact you feel like you said something that you didn't like how it felt when you said it, or it's giving you anxiety, please tell me, I'll edit that out. I'm not here for gotcha journalism. You know, I'm here to say like, please share your hard thing with me. And I promise to honor it. And if that means that we cut things later, then we cut things later. You know, if it means you're not actually ready to have this conversation and we need to reschedule it. Okay. Like this is. I hope this is a service to the people who are coming on the podcast as much as it is for the people who are listening. Um, People who have gone through loss, people who have lost their people want to talk about their people. I know that from doing this podcast and I want to give people the opportunity to, to do that, to share, you know, what this person was like outside of the loss, what, what the love was like, what the relationship was like. Um, And, and so I just try to be I just try to be really mindful of that. Yeah. And it's a lot of empathy. It's a lot of putting yourself in that situation, taking your time um, and being curious without being callous. Yeah. Well, and, and you're, and you're meeting them kind of where you are too, which gives Mm -hmm. you like a a real special credibility and creates a circumstance where I know most people are going to feel pretty safe and supported talking to you. Um, I don't know your husband. Well, Uh, I I know what, what sort of like frontward facing, obviously he's a prominent executive in the, in the highest uh, hockey league in the world as assistant general manager for the Calgary flames. Um, I want to let people know that Chris is, he's not with us today, not because he's not healthy enough or not because it's because the flames are preparing for free agency (laughs) and he's got, he's, he's still working his ass off, which is amazing. But you uh, and he, your family, uh, have committed, I guess, in a way, to to sharing some pretty powerful stuff uh, that that I think is like devastating and and almost in a, in a funny way, like amusing at the same time. I, mm-hmm. I I burst out loud, laughing out loud when I saw. We want to show this video of your husband feeding himself through a feeding tube. I mean, yeah. check this out. His comment at the end of it. Um, maybe you can describe for people listening on the, on the podcast, what they're seeing right here, what Chris is doing right here, Kelsey. So swallowing requires muscles and Chris is swallowing muscles of atrophy. So a year and a half ago, he got a feeding tube and he also doesn't have the use of his right hand. So he's feeding himself via his feeding tube with a syringe with food that I made for him, uh, with one hand. 
and he's he's just like rolling his eyes. They're watching the Blue Jays game, and he's watching that, talking to my son. Delicious. Listen to this. Amazing. Tastes like nothing. <laughs> tastes like nothing. He says. Uh, I said delicious, <laughs> and he said tastes like nothing. <laughs> yeah, and, and and like at the same time, here's a young man who who like you know. Is, is is like career wise, family wise, like hitting home runs, um, feeding himself through a tube, and and yeah. like there's a tragedy to that, and and at the same time he's he's joking around. You guys are all laughing. It's uh, it's amazing. And here he is, just out mowing the lawn. No big deal. Like, <laughs> what makes this guy tick? Is it you, probably? <laughs> oh, Chris is the most resilient human that I have ever met. So, you know, it's it's a weird life. Um, He's not supposed to be alive by any measure. And so we try to look at it through that lens. It can be hard to focus on all that you have instead of all that you stand to lose. Um, and some days it's easier to do that than others. Obviously those two little humans there in that picture help us do that um, every single day. Uh, but yeah, like, you know, as long as you can mow the lawn, mow the lawn, because these are the things that you miss when you can't do them. Um, and so, you know, feeding yourself, yeah, it's, it's crappy. It's, it's not, you know, every time we have a meal that Chris loved Cohen, my 10 year old says, I'm so sorry, dad, like, or Chris will be at work and we'll have a meal that he loves. And he'll say, I'm so glad dad's not here. So he doesn't have to see us eat this because he loved this food. And so it's always on our minds, the things that dad has lost, but we also, you know, there's a humor is an important part of the grieving process. Anybody will tell you that, um, you know, you can be crying one minute and then laughing the next. And, and it's something that, um, that we definitely try to try to utilize because you can't always cry. <laughs> yeah. No way. Um, Kelsey Snow's our guest. If you're just tuning in live streaming audio on the Mixler audio app, how do you talk to your kids? How do, how, how do you help kids that are old enough to understand, but like maybe not quite, I mean, they're, they're old and they're, they're not five. They're not three. Yeah. Um, how do you have those conversations? You're honest. Kids understand more than you think they do. And they're thinking about it more than you think they do. And sometimes you get it wrong. Um, but you do your best in the moment to just be real with them. We've told them we're not going to hide things from you. Um, you know, you have a question, please come to us with it. We are the experts here. And if we don't have the answer, then we'll go to the doctors who have the answer, but you, you come to us, you know, Cohen's 10 now, so he can Google <laughs> and we need to be sure that, you know, the information that they're getting is the best information. Um, we have a extra element here in that we have a family history of this disease. They understand that this is, um, something that's in our family. It wasn't long after we, first told our kids that Chris had this, that, um, Cohen asked Chris, dad, if you got this from your dad, can I get this from you? Hmm. Um, and this is a question that I get a lot on social media. Um, you know, can your kids, that your kids have a chance of getting this? Well, it's genetic. So yes. Um, and the thing that we told Cohen is, uh, the thing that I say to other people too, I have a great neurologist at Sunnybrook in Toronto that, um, was the neurologist for the first part of the clinical trial. Now we get the clinical trial medicine just two minutes from our house at Foothills here in Calgary, which is amazing. But for the first like nine months, we were going to Toronto once a month for this um, clinical trial that Chris is in. And this neurologist there, Lauren Zinman, we were maybe there the first, first or second time we were there. And he put his hand on my knee and he looked me in the eye and he said, I don't want you to worry about your kids. We're going to, I'm going to start crying. Sorry. Yeah, I'm uh, too. We're going to figure this out. 
we're so close to figuring this out, this familial type of ALS specifically. Sporadic ALS is not as far along in the process as this specific type that Chris has, but um, he said, I don't want you to worry about your kids. And, you know, in the dark of the night, when your eyes are op wide open and you're staring at the ceiling and you're thinking about all the things that are terrify you, um, that's number one. And I think about what he said to me, he's not an ALS doctor is not, uh, in the market to peddle false hope. And so I hold on to that very, very tightly. Um, and so, you know, what we told Cohen that day was, you know, I used to work, we used to worry about that, but these medicines are coming and they're getting so, they're so good. And the doctors are so confident and excited about what's to come that we don't, we don't need to worry about that anymore. I want to thank you for sharing that with us. Um, that, that's a huge and heavy thing to process and to continue to process. And we're seeing, I mean, just wait till this podcast drops. We're already seeing some feedback from people that are so grateful that you've come here today. We've, we've done some, I mean, today we talk about men's mental health and suicide prevention in Canada. We're talking about ALS and young people encountering big challenges. And like, you don't call a show real talk and then spend like, no, no offense to your husband's profession. I could talk hockey all day long. Don't get me wrong. But every once in a while, it feels pretty good uh, to talk about something that really, really matters and something that we know that people can relate to. And it might not be, like I said, and people can check out the website, right? Sorryimsad.com. Like, it's it's not an ALS podcast. It's a it's a podcast where, where that is the context. Um, but you've had so many, I mean, people that have experienced uh, stillbirth. And I mean, I, I'm just off the top of my head. There are so many different conversations you've had that are so incredibly important. So you, you've done this, you've applied your storytelling talent and experience to that as a journalist. But, but I also wanted to, and I'm really glad that you brought up the trial meds uh, because before we wrap our conversation, I know you've got stuff to do today. I just, I can't help but notice and people that follow you on social media, for example, you're on Twitter at Kelsey S writes. You can check out our real talk RJ tweet. If you ever want to connect with guests that you're seeing or hearing here on the show, um, you're reaching out, you're advocating to the US FDA, And I've seen a ton of tweets from you, um, really lobbying. Uh, and I know that's a loaded word, but really advocating for, for, for these types of meds to be approved by governing bodies, for them to be available to ALS patients. Is, is this something where a lot of your efforts are going into? I mean, obviously you're on the clock right now, right? Yeah, I'm on the clock. My kids are on the clock. Um, my, my whole world is on the clock, right? So, uh, you know, ALS patients have been told the worst thing they've been told, go home and die. There's no hope for you. You're going to die. It's going to be probably fast. Um, it's going to be relentless. It's going to be horrible. You know, the reason why people who have watched somebody in it that they love die of ALS, the reason why they stay in that fight, even after the person, um, has is gone is because it does not leave you. It is a devastating and insidious disease. Um, and it's horrible to watch somebody go through. So what we want is more funding. Um, ALS is not as rare as people think it is every uh, 90 minutes. Somebody is diagnosed with ALS every 90 minutes, somebody dies of ALS. So there's just not a lot of people alive at a given time with the disease, but that's largely because it's just so quickly fatal. You know, we don't have a lot of survivors. We don't have people going into remission. So it's not like we have this group of advocates who have survived this illness and now they're advocating and they can share their stories. No, like when you have ALS, generally speaking, that's all you can deal with is the disease. 
with your family, your caregivers. It's just every single day you're grinding it out. You're trying to get through the day. And so if we're in a space, some of these people, some, some of these advocates who have the space, the mental capacity, the emotional capacity to advocate while they're going through it, then, then, then we need to do that. You know, I say to people, if you don't have a personal connection to this disease, I'm offering up my family to you. Um, mm. Let my family be your personal connection, care about my family, care about my kids, care about my husband, if you have no other connection, and then enter this world and see all these other families who are going through this disease, who have lost somebody to this disease, who are in the process of losing somebody to this disease, and, and join us, help us. We need people who aren't just necessarily have a one degree separation with this disease to be in the fight. And as far as approving drugs and things like that for ALS, we're trying to tell people is we want incremental things. We're not looking for a magic bullet. We want time. That's all people with ALS want is time. We want more time with the people that we love. We want to keep our loved ones here. We want another month of my husband. If a drug extends somebody's month by or life by three months, like three more months of my husband being here to watch my kids play hockey <sighs> matters. Nothing matters more. Kelsey couldn't be a bigger fan. Um, I don't know. It's like you're the type of person I see it every single day because I spend a lot of time on your social media. Cause you're, <laughs> for, first of all, you know, I grew up in Calgary and I have this strange relationship between the two hockey. I, the, the Battle oh. of Alberta. I was just the Battle of Alberta was a mess for me. Killing and you. <laughs> everybody and everybody wanted the Snow family to see a cup run for the Flames. And, and then, you know, we've got little Ben, ben Stelter yeah. in Edmonton. And so you had the Ben story for the Oilers. And, and ultimately, by the end, I found I found where I could stand on it, which was that I'll be happy if either team wins um but people but literally like thousands and thousands of people are walking with your family because like you said you said i'm offering up my family like you're providing context you're providing the inroad you're providing kind of i guess this opportunity for for people to be able to join you on a journey that's like how do you even find the words yet you do with this sorry i'm sad podcast i'm so grateful that you made time to talk to us about it today i know it's going to resonate with people i have confidence it's going to reach the people that need to be reached with it. Who knows? Maybe a future guest on your podcast will reach out because they heard you here. I don't know. They can check out <laughs> sorryimsad.com and subscribe anywhere they get their podcasts. Are we leaving anything on the table? I don't want to thank you for your time before we touch on something important. Well, I would just like to say you opened with that great commercial yeah. or video that we put out. Um, so we have this challenge going on right now. June is ALS Awareness Month. Um, in Canada, we started it on Lou Gehrig day, which was June 2nd. And we are, um, we're just trying to get people to do something simple with your opposite hand. Chris is right-handed, but he's lost the use of his right hand. And so, you know, it came about because last summer we went to Boston, that's where Chris grew up and they, on, you know, for Chris's 40th birthday, uh, Chris and the kids all threw out a first pitch and Chris had to throw it left-handed. And so he's had to teach himself how to play catch with the kids left-handed, how to do everything left-handed. And, and so the challenge is just, you know, the hashtag is weak side strong and it's just do something, anything with your opposite hand or your opposite foot and, you know, post a video of it, challenge your friends, share it. And then we have a great website, weaksidestrong.org that has a ton of different great options that you can donate to different places that are doing great work. Um, in the ALS community, whether it's through their research, their advocacy, helping families um, who have ALS 
stay as independent um, as possible through technology and assistive mm. devices, things like that. So there's lots of great options. Um, you know, we're always hoping everybody in the ALS community is always just hoping for another ice bucket challenge moment um, to turn the attention to this disease again and keep people paying attention. Yeah, that ice bucket challenge was just a remarkable. It was it was a phenomenon. I mean, people have people have been trying to recreate it uh, mm-hmm. for other charities for years. Yeah. Um, there was something about it, right? And, and memory serves, if it's correct, uh, Kelsey, it was just one year only. They, they let it happen just the one time, right? Yeah, or did they, did mean, they try to recreate it again and it didn't kind of, it's The best hard. thing about the ice bucket challenge is that it was totally organic. Yeah. Like it wasn't a plan. It no. was like, oh, let's do this. Um, it was two, two people, two ALS patients actually from Boston, um, Pete Frades and Pat Quinn, and they, they, they started it and it raised over $200 million for research and for, for ALS funding. And it just raised this whole awareness of like what even ALS is. And I think people now can say those letters and they're like, oh yeah, ALS ice bucket challenge. But now the goal is like, no, no, we're still here. We still haven't figured this thing out. And let me tell you what those three letters actually mean in our lives. Yeah. I'm trying to find a picture really quick. I'm like, as we're talking, I'm trying to find a picture on my Facebook. I, I won't be able to find it, but it's, uh, it's me back in the day doing the ice bucket challenge on a TV set. Um, mm-hmm. So impromptu and so unplanned that we didn't remove any of the sort of like technical devices from the room. <laughs> and yeah. I remember the, uh, our, our engineers uh, on set were, were more than gracious in, in explaining to me how that would have been helpful had I maybe removed the mo- Oh, here it is. <laughs> Check this photo out, Kelsey. You have to see. Here it is. This was the 20th of August, 2014. Oh, um, that's, uh, that's my wife, Carrie, on the left, and that's Kate Gallagher of KMG Events. Uh, she, was the, she was the top donor to dump that garbage can of water and ice over my head on on a tv set an amazing photo that raised a bunch of dough but i think it might have done more damage money wise than it would have anyway oh man it makes it that that makes me smile because it takes me back to a time like you said 200 million raised around the world and it put it all over people's radar hard to believe almost 10 years ago but here you are keeping that conversation going really remarkable stuff thank you for having me i really appreciate the chance to to share to any audience that that will listen. Well, I was I was telling people that in uh, your and my correspondence ahead of time, you know, you basically just reached out to me. Uh, you said I love real talk. You're not talking about the show. You're talking about the concept. You say yeah. I love real talk. It's truly my favorite thing. So let's riff. And I thought that's uh, the best commitment that any guest can bring to the table is just to keep it real. And you do it all the time. Again, sorry, I'm sad. Com is where you can find Kelsey Snow's amazing podcast. And then, of course, if you want to get involved with what she's talking about as well, WeeksideStrong.org or just use the hashtag WeeksideStrong. Kelsey, thanks. Give a big shout out to Chris for us and tell your kids they're loved. Uh, thank you so much, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you got it. Can we all agree the world is a better place with the Snow family in it? Can we all agree there's something absolutely remarkable about Kelsey's perspective. If this is your first time seeing or hearing that interview, I hope it hit you like it hit us. Now, every Tuesday here on the show, we celebrate innovation. We celebrate impact in community contexts with The Leading Edge, presented by our friends at Leading Edge Physiotherapy. And back on June 14th, we highlighted the Indigenous People's Experience at Fort Edmonton Park. It's now wide open to the public, and it's earning rave reviews for a number of different reasons. You'll find out why in just a moment. But first... 
Park Power is your friendly local utilities provider. Whether you're looking for electricity, natural gas, or internet, or maybe all three, you owe it to yourself to compare rates today on their website, parkpower.ca. Along with it comes a charitable contribution. What other utilities provider does that? Don't forget when you sign up, the promo code 2022-REALTALK gets you $70 off your first bill from Park Power. Kubi Energy wants to remind Canadians there's a $40,000 interest-free loan available from the federal government for homeowners looking to install solar. It's never been more energy efficient nor affordable to go green at home. The team at Kubi is experts. They handle all the paperwork and of course it's professionally installed. Get your free quote today at kubienergy.ca. Covenant Health has made a huge difference for patients and their loved ones for more than 160 years. And for 30 years, the Covenant Foundation Lottery has played a role in making a difference for those in their care. Every ticket purchased has a far-reaching impact. Thanks to you, Covenant Health is at the forefront of technological innovations and a leader in palliative and urgent care. Get your tickets today at covenantfoundationlottery.ca. Grand Dog Essentials quality raw food is what we feed our dogs, Moses and Monroe. Need I say any more? We've noticed the health benefits with each of them, from a shinier coat to alleviation of joint pain. Quality says it all. You can shop online today at granddog.ca. The promo code REALTALK knocks 10% off your first time order. Delivered to your door in Calgary, Edmonton, and Central Alberta at granddog.ca. Leading Edge Physio give us an opportunity every single week to focus on a person, an organization, a group that's impacting positive change in their community. We call it the Leading Edge. And on the Leading Edge this week, this is really remarkable and we're especially excited because it's happening in our own backyard. It's the new Indigenous Peoples Experience at Fort Edmonton Park. Check this out. It's just been recognized internationally with a Thea Award for celebrating outstanding work on educational, historical, and entertainment projects. The Indigenous People's Experience is a one-of-a-kind immersive experience that engages guests in Indigenous customs, traditions, and highlights the inspirational stories of First Nations and Métis people who have resided on these lands for hundreds and thousands of years. Now, this opportunity to uplift Indigenous communities comes at a critical time in Canada's reconciliation with Indigenous people, the first exhibit of its kind anywhere in the country. Now, how did it come about? Well, conversations with more than 50 Indigenous elders and historians, educators, community members informed the content that's shared at the exhibit and the stories, the artwork comes directly from Indigenous perspectives from over 40 local First Nations. A lot of historical documents, research on display. It's almost impossible to not learn something, including the music there, written and composed by local award-winning Indigenous musicians and performers through an artist residency. How cool is that? Local Indigenous interpreters greet guests and impart their own personal stories and history, adding unique depth to the experience. The Indigenous People's Experience at Fort Edmonton Park is now open to the public for the 2022 season. And this week on Real Talk, it is on The Leading Edge. 
Leading Edge is presented every Tuesday here on the show by Leading Edge Physiotherapy. Life shouldn't hurt. We want to mention if you think of a story or if you think of a person that's innovating in their own context, that's making an impact in your or their community, tell us about it. We're taking nominations for future episodes of The Leading Edge to talk at ryanjesperson.com. That's where you can reach us anytime. And of course, while we're mentioning our website, we want to remind you that there are a lot of ways that you can connect with the show, like subscribing to our Real Talk Sunday message. That's our email that goes out every Sunday night, our official newsletter reminding you of some of the highlights of the previous week on the show and some of the highlights to come in future episodes of Real Talk. We thank the thousands of subscribers to the email and want to remind those of you that aren't yet on the list, there's plenty of room. Sign up right now at ryanjesperson.com. We'll see you tomorrow. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, Executive Producer Josh Dunford, Technical Producer John Hicks, General Manager Katie Cook Chivers, Account Coordinator Lawrence Durlego, Human Resources Lena Shepard, Website Design Mike Johnston, VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandy Morin, Ann Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a relay project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com.